0: Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining, a special grass warm-up edition. I'm Ben Rothenberg. Joining me where things seem to be crashing in Birmingham is Courtney Nguyen. Hi Courtney, how you doing?
1: It's soppy, it's crashy, it's noisy. it's just it's Birmingham, which thankfully next year will be a premier level tournament. But right now it's an international level tournament, which means it's an international level tournament.
0: <laughs> what is it what does that mean for people who haven't maybe seen the differences up close?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the WTA rules basically when you when you buy like the international versus premier versus premier mandatory different levels of tournaments. Like, you know, there are different amenities that mm-hmm. are provided. International level is obviously, I guess, the second to la- lowest level. I guess there's now that whatever that 125k,
0: right, which is pretty much a challenger.
1: Exactly. So yeah, it's just a, a very large cavernous. Press area that is probably the loudest press conference room I've ever been in. So it's a bit, uh, it's a bit difficult for players, but uh, but it's still, it, it's fun. It's nice and relaxing. I genuinely enjoy the Birmingham tournament, which explains why I'm one of the crazy people who's willing to leave Queens to hop on a train out out this way.
0: Yeah, actually, let's talk about sort of just, I guess, the choices that come along with grass season on our level, because um, we've both sort of read the Choose Your Own Adventure adventure (laughs) novel of grass court season differently this year, following almost totally different paths, I think. You decided to do Queens and Birmingham, and then you're doing Eastbourne. Yep. (laughs) And I am doing uh, Hala, and then Wimbledon qualifying, I think, and maybe a small cameo in Eastbourne, depending on how various orders of place shake out both places. What do you make of the tournaments you've been doing so far? I think we can talk about this in context a little bit of a piece that came out today by Alex Ramsey mm-hmm. on the Tennis Shorts blog about her thoughts on Queens. Those of you who don't know Alex Ramsey, it's a veteran British tennis writer, works with Sandy Harwood on the Tennis Shorts blog, and yeah, she had some thoughts about that place.
1: <laughs> she had some things to say about Queens. I mean, it's been interesting because I think, at least by my recollection, uh-huh. this week has kind of seen the, probably the most negative kind of Queen's pieces to come out in succession that I've seen in a while since the tournaments, uh, since I've been paying attention anyway. At least out here in Britain, was another piece that was written in The Guardian by yeah, not a tennis right yeah, but not a tennis writer but another writer who kind of did like a this is what Queens is like piece that was, you know, kind of picked up on some of the same things that both Alex Ramsey as well as Steve Tigner picked up on in, in his initial dispatch from the tournament for tennis.com. And it all really centers around just kind of how posh the tournament is and in a way that is really alienating. Yeah, You know, it, it ceases to be kind of something, at least over the three years that I've been going to Queens. This year in particular, I really did find that it, the poshness of the tournament has ceased to become amusing and has actually been become more alienating yeah. than it's really felt for me in the past and it's really made me question whether or not I, I i do want to return to the tournament to cover it simply because typically speaking as you know ben you know you've really i think not lucked out because i think it was a very smart move to go to Hala. and when it comes to the two atp tournaments that are going on this week uh yeah if i had to choose them i, I would have i would have probably gone back and chose hola instead of queens
0: yeah hola has been been nice so far for sure it's uh, we got hurt A little bit. I wasn't feeling quite as smart when Rafa pulled out, like, an hour after I landed in Germany. But I kind of expected that a little bit with him playing, you know, a five-setter in the semis and then really never being very much for these grass warm-up tournaments ever. He's never done particularly well in Halle or in Queens back when he played there. And yeah, but things here seem to be much smoother. There's a roof, which is remarkable. Players seem like they're in a good mood. All sorts of entertainment around the grounds and good food, like all sorts of ridiculously German stuff. You know, there's like sausage stands and beer stands and pretzels everywhere. And it's, it's, it's tremendous. It's like, it's um, exaggeratedly German here. So I enjoy that very much. There was a band that went on last night that had like a tuba player and stuff. And I was I was getting so excited by it. And you know, one of the other writers who was saying like, I hope you do not think we are Bavarians because we are not Bavarians. It's like, oh. <laughs> So, I mean, that is awesome. I, I get to learn a lot about, you know, distinctions in German stuff, and to you see know, it's a different side of the, you know, tennis world. And Germany is a big tennis country, probably the biggest one without a slam, it and Russia, arguably. Yeah, it's interesting to sort of get a first glimpse at how they do their tennis here, because I don't really have, you know, a whole lot of perspective on what localists make of Florian Meyer and Cedric Marshall Stebe and all that kind of stuff, so it's been, it's been fun.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it looks that way, and, you know, kind of going off of what you were saying with respect to that tournament, kind of embracing... Its Germanness in all of its Germanity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, you know, I feel like with Queens, what's what seems to be at least something that I kind of picked up off of um, Alex Ramsey's piece that I thought was. Really quite smart was the distinction that she made between Queens and Wimbledon because I think that a lot of times I've heard people kind of say, "Oh, I don't like Wimbledon because it's so posh and it's so fancy," and that's just never really been my take. Yeah, having gone to Wimbledon because there is the other side of Wimbledon, which is the queue, which is regular people getting tickets through the ballot. Yeah, it's not easy to get tickets, but if you get them, like anybody can have one, like you know.
0: And they're kind of reasonably priced compared to Queens. That's my Absolutely. one. That's my one Queens experience. I tried going there. Keyword tried in 2008, I got off like on the appropriate tube stop and stuff, and I sort of walked up to the gate, and I saw that the cheapest tickets for the first Monday of the tournament when seriously, nobody was playing, because all the players who didn't have buys, and there can be a lot of like pretty low-level players who get into the Queen's main draw, because it's 56, mm-hmm. the tickets were like 55 pounds, like a grounds pass, and yeah. I was like, whoa, no. I'm leaving. Bye bye. Yeah. Because just like dollar was like at its weakest at that point, so it would have been like 115. dollars
1: Whereas the grounds past Wimbledon is 20 pounds, I think.
0: Yeah, I was going in the afternoon and it was like you know 10, so it mm-hmm. was great. So Wimbledon yeah. definitely makes itself more for the people. Queens seems to be more for the uh, Pippa and people who want to be like Pippa.
1: Pretty much, pretty much. So it, yeah. it can be a little bit off-putting in that way. So, but yeah, but so I was in Queens for a couple of days. Um, saw some good tennis and you know didn't regret. You know, stopping in London to do that, but um, yeah. now in Birmingham, where it is soppy, is there are very, very few suits or red trousers or Gucci loafers. Yeah, in Birmingham, and these are my people. These are, you know, as as Alex Ramsey calls them, the proles, the proletariat. Yeah. So you know, I feel much more comfortable here, and but it hasn't been without drama. So it's been good.
0: I don't know if you feel as comfortable there, though, as Alison Risk does.
1: <laughs> no one feels as comfortable in Birmingham. As Alison Risk.
0: This is her one week of the year. So let's give a shout out to Alison Risk, who hasn't, I don't know if we ever mentioned her name on the podcast before. Alison Risk, aka the Princess of Birmingham, Duchess of Birmingham. You called her Queen of Birmingham. I got to hold that title until she actually wins the tournament. Fair enough. I think she's sort of, a, she's not quite the highest royalty yet, but she can earn it if she wins two more matches. We're recording this on Saturday afternoon. Risk has won 11 WTA main draw matches in her career, which has been going on for about four years now, her pro career. And they've all come in Birmingham. And she's played 13 other first rounds and main draws, other tournaments, and lost them. What do we make of this, Corey? This is ridiculous. Yeah,
1: the incredible thing is that I finally got, you know, I've seen her play in Birmingham before, but I really get the sense that she's really been playing her best at Birmingham this year. Yeah. And so I saw her play Sabina Lisicki in a match that was rain-addled and took two days to complete. It's not like she has a game that is, like, a junkie game that would take advantage of Birmingham's kind of torn up outer courts.
0: She's not a Peronkova.
1: Yeah, she's not a Peronkova, she's not a Nicolascu. I asked Sabina Lisicki about Risk's game today, and she said, you know, she takes the ball like she likes the low bounces. That's the biggest thing. But then that doesn't really explain it, because then she should do well at Wimbledon or Eastbourne, at least, like, get a win, yeah. you know. So it, it never really makes sense, but she just loves these courts. I'm looking forward to talking to her about it after her semifinal match today. Great, great story for her. Um, Madison Keys also had a good week making the quarterfinals in her first WTA main draw grass tournament. That's not bad. That's not bad for the for the 18-year-old. So that was pretty cool. And then, yeah, uh, a bunch of the Americans have already moved on to Eastbourne, which is where I will be
0: next week. It's interesting, actually, because this has been a tournament where youngsters have done well. In Birmingham on the women's side, you talk about Keys. Risk is kind of a little bit of a youngster. She's at any other tournament, She's a Birmingham veteran. <laughs> and then Donna Vekic is also doing well here, whereas in Hala... Like, the young guys who were the exciting people to watch here all kind of flamed out. Janovitz lost first round and was actually complaining a bunch about elbow pain afterwards. Mm. Nishikori lost after having a bye in, into the second round. He lost his first match. Ronich lost his first match. So, yeah, it was a different sort of situation here and there. So some of the storylines I was looking to write, you know, guys who had planned out all lost early and weren't really in the mood to do any sort of, you know, in-depth featurey stuff here. So had to call some audibles and, you know, but luckily you had Gael Monfils around to keep things a little too entertaining.
1: Yeah, I mean, explain the Gael Monfils experience in Halle.
0: Uh, Gael Monfils' worst surface is grass. He's skipped Wimbledon a few times. He's lost. He never made it to the fourth round there on any appearance. Um, He's made the semifinals here once, apparently, a couple years ago, which I didn't realize before. So, Gail Monfils comes out. He wins his first match. Monfils beat Ronich first, and that was pretty convincing because I really thought Ronich would be, like, you know, someone tailor-made for grass. And Monfils just picked apart his serve, and it was really pretty comprehensive. And then he comes out and plays uh, Haas in the next round. And uh, oh know. I'm forgetting this. I'm, me- I'm-, I'm messing up the job. Anyway, Haas, <laughs> Monfils played really well. <laughs> he, it, it was super memorable, clearly. <laughs> it was super memorable. Well, the thing is, when you when Malfis is playing, you're not paying a whole lot of attention to who's on the other side of the court. That's a good one. So, so Malfis is out there. He's um, putting on a good show for the people, winning some matches, playing some relatively efficient tennis. And during it, it comes out as he's talking. He didn't mention this in the English press. We actually were talking a little bit. One of the German reporters here was asking about how his hair right now looks like Coolio's hair. Which is true. <laughs> yeah. So I think I asked him, you know, if he had anything planned for his hair for Wimbledon, because he said he kept it a little bit reserved when he was at the French. Cause he didn't want people to get distracted by his hair and have to be a storyline in Paris. And he was like, oh, I don't know, maybe I'll do something cool there. I have to plan it out or whatever. And then he told the French press that he actually wasn't going to play Wimbledon because of <laughs> personal problems, and which could be serious. So I probably shouldn't make light of this, but right. like, how do you, how are you playing now? But you know, at a 250, which is a warm-up event, but. You know that you're going to have a personal problem in like two and a half weeks.
1: Not yeah. rumor, because it's it's less than a rumor. But the kind of scuttlebutt that I'm hearing is that there may be, you know, a death in the family or or friends or something like that. But then, so that's the thing. That's, he didn't
0: seem like at all yeah. like, distracted here. He seemed he was in a very very good mood. He was at his sort of most showmanly here. So that's possible. But I don't understand like the timeline of it. It's been confusing yeah. people here.
1: No, that makes sense.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. So and there was a lot. And then he played Tommy Haas in the quarterfinals. Was up a set. He was serving to stay in the second set, 3 5. Essentially, Haas had not been broken yet in the match, but if Gale held serve, Tommy would have to serve to stay, hold, win the stay, second. Hold, win the second, and then Gale would get to serve first in the third, which would be an advantage. And at 15 all, Haas hits a defensive law. <laughs> and I'm sure everyone has seen this point by now on YouTube or the gifts of it or whatever. Malfi sort of waits for the ball to land, swings his right leg over it, does a 360, and then hits a pretty terrible overhead right back at Haas, and Haas wins the point.
1: And Gael gets broken for And Gael side.
0: gets broken, and so Haas serves first in the third and wins that one 6-3. People did not know what to make of That was a point that inspired a lot of debate around here. French press apparently were giving him a pretty hard time about it. Obviously, I mean, as you can imagine, Monfils has to be an exhausting guy to try to cover. <laughs> like, if you're, a, if you're a French beat writer covering the French game, like, coming to a tournament, having your country's hopes riding on Gael Monfils, yeah. that's just that's not a ride you want to sign up for necessarily and so there was some tension there with him saying you know oh I was just doing it the most efficient way I can I don't like when you um think that I'm playing dumb or being crazy or foolish or something I'm not gonna hit the shot like Richard Gasquet he apparently said apparently in Maltese's mind Gasquet is like the golden boy of French tennis which you know I'm not sure where he got that idea yeah so it's, it's been interesting getting a sense of that and how people make of it. What did you make of the, of the shot, Courtney? Because I know you wrote a Beyond the Baseline post about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just, it was ill-advised. It was Gael Malfis in a nutshell. It was yeah. an ill-advised shot that made everybody's jaw drops and then immediately made everyone shake their heads.
0: You're applauding and you're shaking your head at the same time.
1: Yeah, you know, like, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. You're in still a winning position. You know, you're still a set-up. You have no business hitting that shot Um, at the same time. You know, we sit there and we say we want everybody to, you know, be entertaining on court and all that sort of stuff. But with him, what's so frustrating with him is that he has so much talent and so much potential that to lose these sorts of matches and to do these. He doesn't need to hit that shot to be an exciting player, basically, is what I mean. No, not at all. And so I think that that's what becomes very frustrating and and it's hard, not just the French tennis beat writers, but also just tennis beat writers to really keep, you know, like for me, like as a blogger, I mean, I think Monfils probably makes it onto our site, you know, on a weekly or monthly basis with some crazy shot that he hits and it's always a popular post and people see them and they think this guy's amazing. Like, why doesn't, why isn't he more of a thing? And it's like having to explain to people constantly that this incredibly entertaining tennis player is kind of a doof in the head and can't win the simple matches it becomes a difficult thing to sell I'm
0: trying to think of who's a good sort of person who does what he does but a little bit more professionally honestly i think it's probably radvanska radvanska plays with a lot of creativity and does takes a lot of shots that are maybe sometimes overly creative or you know have a lot of flair to them but are smart still and she still goes out there and you never doubt that she's trying to win a match at any point you, you can never compa- and you never get the sense that she's putting show over substance.
1: And you can say the same about Federer.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. I actually asked Federer about this today. Yeah. in um, his thing and he and I was asking if he'd seen the shot and he hadn't, but he'd heard about it from people, which is not surprising cuz really everyone's been talking about it for the last 24 hours here. Mm-hmm. So the thing is it happened in a quarter final here. This was a big match here. And he suddenly started playing like it was an XO midway through it. And Federer was saying, you know, there's a time and place for that. You know, if you're up 5-0, 4-0 a set, then you can kind of go for the highlight reel shots. And Federer is someone who's obviously very conscious of the fact that, you know, there are videos of his greatest hits all over YouTube, and he clearly likes that. So he, he's someone who's willing to, you know, put on a show for people and be a little bit circusy sometimes. But there's a time and place for it. Because he's also somebody who's, you know, won 900-plus matches at this point, And Malthus is not that guy. Exactly. So I just think it's been interesting. It's an interesting sort of case study and showmanship over substance and just the frustrations of Malfis, And I know that actually... You like the uh, the quote that Golbus had about Monfils, which I thought was interesting, because they're definitely sort of a little bit kindred spirits on that. Although Golbus does not have the same sort of self-destructive tendencies, you know, midpoint, I don't think you could ever say.
1: I mean, he has self-destructive tendencies, but he has it because he's trying too hard. Yeah. It, it's not because, like, he'll bash a ball out or miss an easy shot or something like that. But it's not because he decides to go for a trick shot for no apparent reason other than to just be fanciful. Yeah. You know, I mean there's a purpose behind what Golbus is doing. He just makes the wrong decision or has poor execution. That's a completely different issue and one that I think at the end of the day I can respect more. But yeah, I did I did like Golbus kind of saying, you know, what was it that the everybody knows that Gaël has top talent and just waiting for a switch to click in his head. Yeah. And which is exactly what we all say about Golbus as well. So Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, I, I find Monfils, I on the whole, and I know most people find Monfils really entertaining, and I do as well, but I think that I'm a little bit more of kind of, I see him as just kind of a wasted talent, and I get sad about that. And so I think that when I write about him, I kind of come from it more from that angle and yeah. that that viewpoint, rather than, look at this guy, he's, he's so ridiculous, oh my gosh, like only Gael could hit this. I'm like, oh, here goes Gael again, hitting an ill-advised, but totally entertaining shot and losing yeah. the match.
0: It's both for me. I think it's, you know, it's sort of a wistful, joy-watching Kyle play yeah. a little bit. I mean, you saw him at the French. He had match points to, I think, four match points yeah. in like the fourth round against Robredo, and he, who knows, he could have, he was in a very nice part of the draw that tournament. He could have definitely gotten into a quarterfinal against Ferrer, which I think he would have had a shot in. They just kind of let it go, and And then he comes here and does this. And who knows? I mean, a couple different things had fallen the right way in big matches previous to him. Maybe he would take his career a whole lot more seriously. But as of now, he is not.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's kind of one of those players where I say, I will take you seriously when you take yourself seriously.
0: Learn to respect yourself, Gaia. Yeah,
1: exactly. you got to love yourself before other people can love you. So, like, you know, until that happens, then I just kind of consider him a bit of a a circus sideshow. And I want nothing more than for Gael Monfils to be a top 10 player. I want it. I want him to be good. He would be so much
0: better He would would bring so many fans to the sport. Yes.
1: He would change the sport. He plays a completely different sport. But he just has to rein it in. Just a little bit.
0: Thiel Monfils is French, obviously. And uh, the tournament that just ended before this grass season was the French Open. Kind of a big deal. We haven't mentioned how it ended. We haven't done a show since it ended, actually. So we probably spent a little bit of time taking a quick look back at the French and the uh, champions we had, who were the overwhelming favorites going in. But, you know, they still won. Courtney, whose win impressed you more? Whose title? uh, Serena's or Nadal's?
1: I guess if you compare them both, I guess I'll say Serena. Serena.
0: I think I would agree. Why would yeah. you do
1: that? Because Serena's not a seven-time didn't go in as a seven-time French Open champion. That's shown right. her domination over and over and over again at the French Open regardless of the draw put in front of him or her. You know, I mean I think that you know if you compare them both serena was was the more impressive run but that being said if you were just not compare them both and you were just to look at it objectively i wouldn't necessarily say that either run was particularly impressive or memorable except for the fact that they won
0: yeah i think serena's is definitely more memorable
1: yeah it's more because memorable. It was only
0: her second one
1: because of the historical impact it's memorable but right. not because of the seven matches that she was that she had to play there
0: that's true. I think, yeah, the Kuznetsova match was a little bit, was, was a good test for her. The Iranian match, I think, was actually kind of memorable for how unbelievably lopsided it was for that stage of the tournament. I mean, for her to go out and beat a clay court specialist who's in the top five, 6 6-1 or something in 47 minutes or whatever it was, that's an exclamation point. And then I thought Maria Sharapova actually played really well in that final. She did. I she was did. very impressed by Pova if she had won that match, which it was kind. It was kind of looking like she would at least was definitely in play in the first set for sure. Um, it would have been a huge, huge story for Pova. But I thought that final was a really good test, and I think Pova put up a much better fight in women's final than Ferrer did in the men's final, which was really pretty dull, except for the fireworks.
1: Yes, except for, except for the fireworks. Yeah, I mean, I think that for the men, you know, I guess people will look back on the de facto final, the Rafa-Novak semi, which really right. I don't think was a particularly great match. I mean, I think that, well, I thought it was an interesting match, but I think that Novak was outplayed thoroughly yeah. by Rafa over the course of five sets. He, I mean, he had that match had no business being into a fifth. Novak had to come back from a breakdown twice, mm-hmm. yes, in the fourth to win that tiebreak to force the fifth. But, you know, Rafa on the whole, I mean, absolutely, I don't want to Say deserved the match because you win a match, you win a match. You deserve to win any match you win. Yeah. But like he was the better player on the day. Yeah. You know, and, and no, it's a real credit to Novak's kind of fight and his ability to just come up with manufacturing these comebacks seemingly out of nowhere. Yeah. That kept it close.
0: He's an unbelievable competitor on that level. I agree. At big tournaments. I think it's really underrated. I mean, you saw what he did against. I think Favrinka especially at Australian Open. Mm-hmm. This year, I mean, Marinka was really outplaying him for a lot of that match, I think, and yep. he managed to win it. And he, you know, tore his shirt and kind of overdid it maybe a little bit on the celebration, but not really. I mean, you see how much he wants it and how tough he is. And on that sense, he's a little bit of the Sharapova of the ATP tour in terms of just the grit he has out there. Nadal has focus, but I don't think it's quite the same sort of clawing that Djokovic displays.
1: Yeah, but with Djokovic, I think that he his comeback ability and his competitive nature is maybe not appreciated as much, simply because he isn't like the, like you know, every other point vamos guy. Yeah. Like, he, he kind of skews a little bit. I mean, I think on the scale of things, he, I guess Roth is probably the most point-to-point, not competitive, but intense Mm -hmm. and demonstrative and then maybe novak and then maybe andy and then roger you know and so because he isn't showing it a lot of times and sometimes he's smiling on court or sometimes he just looks kind of out of it and frustrated people kind of for whatever reason see that as being less competitive but i really have never understood that as a narrative because not competitive to me is looking flat yeah but showing some form of emotion whether positive or negative is still a sign of competitiveness yeah you know, even if you're negative, like you're negative because you're pissed because you should be winning.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. let's talk about Nadal a little bit. When I send a tweet saying, you know, oh, Nadal wins his eighth French Open or something, you know, some generic like, oh, look, Nadal won again. I mean, the responses you get are invariably with pretty little, at least that I've gotten, pretty little gray area is either like, wow, what a champion. It's such an honor to be alive during his era of domination and you know, and greatness is always compelling or whatever. And then the other side is saying... Yawn. We've seen this before. Get it over. Like you know, this is really, really dull. And I certainly understand both. Um, according to which which side of the of the fence do you think you come on overall, or some of both?
1: No, I mean I think that anybody who's read what I've written over the course of time or has listened to this podcast knows that I like chaos and I generally don't like domination. These are just general general you know statements. Obviously, yeah. you know, a combination of the two is great, and in certain situations, one is cool and the other's cool like whatever but generally speaking i don't like when somebody's winning all the time and i know that that runs counter to what everybody tells me people like in sports which i guess i've personally never really understood but i've always just chalked that up to my own personal thing like yeah you know i like there for there to be some unpredictability and you know i can sit there and i can marvel at at rafa's domination on clay i can sit there and marvel at serena's current domination of the wta it doesn't mean that when i sit down to watch a tennis match it's drawing me in to watch the tennis match.
0: Yeah, I think it's sort of a a forest and tree sort of thing. I mean, I think that when you talk about tennis now and the golden era stuff, if you're sort of zooming out and talking about tennis like in a sort of sports bar context, you know, talking about people, like debating about the sport, then the domination stuff is is good. You know, when you have these big figures, these big storylines, these big legends to, you know, toss around or whatever, then it's good. But when you're actually sitting down to watch the men's final between Nadal and Ferrer, It's hard not to think that what you're about to watch is going to be a complete waste of your next two and a half hours or whatever. Because you know what's going to happen. And you know pretty much that there's nothing that can change that. Big picture in terms of the sports storylines overall, this is good. But the actual viewing experience some of these matches. And the same thing could be said, you know, for various peak of his reign, Federer stuff when he was beating down... Absolutely. Nadal is or at the Australian Open final. He actually always had a little bit tougher time at Wimbledon than I think Nadal has ever had at French on a sort of whole basis anyway. More guys. He had tougher final opponents because he played Nadal a lot. And Roddick played him tough at Wimbledon three times too. But Nadal has just had these really easy goes of it that I think have seemed a little bit it's – it's just very repetitive at this point. I mean you really – we've seen this movie seven times before. Yeah, and I'm not sure. Except for the semifinal was close, but it was still him winning. I'm not sure there was necessarily a new wrinkle this time that made it all that compelling. And I don't know. It's just, it's just it's just right now the field is not there with him on clay at all.
1: Sure. I mean, I think obviously for Rafa, the wrinkle was, and this is a little bit similar to kind of the Serena narrative, was just kind of their recent history. Yeah. So in other words, for Rafa, the drama was in can this guy really do this after you know missing the tour for seven months. All yada, yada, yada. And with Serena, it was like, he, you know, she should do it, but can she do it, right? I mean, that's really kind of the question for both of them.
0: For me, though, the honestly, the Rafa injury narrative sort of resolved itself in Indian Wells. Once he came out and won Indian Wells, I was like, oh, this guy's fine. I mean, really, he's doing fine. And we never saw any sign of weakness. I mean, he lost Monte Carlo, but, like, really, the blips were never there. And Roland Garros has never been a problem for him himself the way it was for oh. others.
1: No, I disagree though. I mean, I think that Monte Carlo was a major blip. I think that is what, for me at least, created some tension through the, French, the through the clay swing. And then once both of them, because it was like, okay, well, has done with this in Barcelona and he's done this in Madrid and he's done this in Rome, but he didn't have to do it against... Novak so that created some tension going into the French and then when they were put on the same side to meet in the semifinals I think that that was like you know justifiably the most anticipated tennis match of the year you know it ended up being a bit of a dud te- you know technically but it was still there was some drama there there was you know there was some some questions you kind of went in being like I, don't know if I should win but you know yeah it, could go the other way so I, I disagree with that a little bit but i think that just on the whole i mean it, i think your observation about the forest and the trees is dead on because for me like i know that i can i could be clicking the channels and so long as like a sporting event regardless of what sporting event is like close in the scoreline i could be i can like find myself absorbed in it Yeah. Rega- you know, regardless of teams or anything and when it's a blowout i just keep on clicking and i think that I mean, that's how I am with sports. And so when it comes to tennis, again, if it's blowout after blowout after blowout and everything is a foregone conclusion, I just do not find that compelling. And it just doesn't, you know, draw me to, to sit in a chair for four hours.
0: Yeah. So so what, what comes next for tennis then? I mean, obviously we're in this state. I think grass for the men at least will be a bit of a toss-up. I don't think Nadal – I don't – I guess I guess Nadal is the favorite. For, I haven't looked at odds or anything. I guess Nadal is a favorite for Wimbledon. But – I'm not really sure who to pick there on the men's side. I think all four of them have a pretty legit argument, all the big mm-hmm. four. Serena on the women's side is setting that up, but do we need a shakeup? I mean, it's tennis, it's getting more in need of it on both sides. Do we need something to happen to, to stir the pot, or can we just, you know, enjoy this from where it is? Are we also sort of different, because we we have to keep track of the sport on such a granular, granular level that maybe we're seeing it a little bit too, you know trees, not forests, I guess.
1: I would definitely agree with what you just said. I mean, I think that there is a occupational hazard in terms of how we see this sport given how much we pay attention to it. Yeah. So obviously we are going to key in on kind of the very, very granular, very kind of the minutiae that no one else gives a shit about. Yeah. You know. So so we you know that's always a check that I have to play upon myself to make sure that I'm not getting lost in my own thoughts, I guess. But in terms of a shakeup, I don't think we necessarily need a shakeup. I think that the fact that the first two slams have gone to two different winners, and even if they didn't, I mean, if Novak had won the French, then you know we'd be talking about the potential Novak Slam. Yeah, or a potential Grand Slam winner.
0: Yeah, a, cal- a calendar slam intrigue sidebar is something we could really use. In this I agree We've been an unbelievably long time without it. It's yeah. really strange in, in this era of such, so few champions on men's and women's side, honestly. It's really strange that no one has pulled off an Australian French double in over 10 years mm-hmm. and o- over 20 on the men's side. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just bizarre. And it has to do mostly with uh, Nadal hugging all the French's and not only winning Australia once. Right. And the one year he won Australia it's the one year he didn't win the French. Right. So I mean that's explains it, I guess, but it's just a weird weird phenomenon. And I think for that's a that's sort of a wishless thing, I can already say it for twenty fourteen. I would like for somebody to win both of
1: them. Yeah, no, that's definitely a good, that's such a good call. But in terms of a shakeup, I mean, do we need for like a Federer or Murray to win Wimbledon and not Rafa Novak? I would never, I would never say that. I I think think that right now there are enough storylines. I think that everyone is still a viable candidate for every single slam. Mm -hmm. And that's what's fun. You know, I mean, I think that the addition of Andy Murray, especially as we head into the second half of the season as being not just the ha-ha, yeah, right, underdog pick for these slams, but a genuine like... No, he did win <laughs> Wimbledon, and he's already won the U.S., so obviously he can win there. And so having four names in the mix, I think, is is really fun for the guys. And you know, and then having your you know the, your perennial group of like three spoilers of the Burdick, Sangha, Delpo. I'm sorry, David Ferrer. I still can't throw you in there. Yeah, I was
0: I was about to bring up Ferrer because so. Ferrer is going to be pretty much unless. Federer defends his Wimbledon title, I think I don't know the exact math on this I think unless Federer wins Wimbledon again, Ferrer is set To move to number 3 um, and pass Federer
1: So we're officially going to have to start retooling How we use the, the terms Big 3 and Big 4, we might just have yeah. to stop abandoning them
0: Yeah, no, I mean What do we make of David Ferrer? I mean, we talked about him on the last show As the sort of bouncer, which I think is perfect You know, he keeps all the riffraff out of the party But lets the VIP guys stroll Right by People talk about, oh, you got to admire this guy's fight. I mean, we talked about it on the show before. We kind of don't necessarily fall into that camp. I and mean, then we kind of both wish, results-wise, he would go away. Because he's he is someone who is to blame for the French Open having a lackluster ending, I think. It would have been much better with Song in the final. Mm-hmm. You know, or Federer. Or, no, I can't say Robredo. But, you know, whoever <laughs> else was late in that tournament. Yeah, I mean, either
1: go away or step up.
0: Exactly, one or the other.
1: You know, it's hard because with Ferrer, like, he is improving. He's obviously, you know, still making career results he's made the semifinals of three of the last four slams I mean credit to him he's done everything I mean he is in every way just kind of like hit his ceiling but until he can pull off the big win over somebody who matters at a slam I just I I cannot (laughs) (laughs) I just I cannot with him
0: yeah let's talk about the women I guess going forward to through the grass season anyone besides Serena standing out to you as someone to watch at Wimbledon at the either you know for a late in the tournament player or just a name to watch early rounds. I
1: mean, other than the typical ones, you know, I mean, uh, a is always going to be dangerous there, depending on her draw. But I guess know. we'll find out
0: more next week. I guess this is kind of interesting yeah. the way the warm up season works. That the men really have the first week and the women have the second week. With Ace
1: Eastbourne being the big show. Eastbourne's the big one. So, you know, we got, like, Caroline Wozniacki drawing Kamira Paschuk, which is kind of funny. Yeah. The first round of Eastbourne. We've got, you know, obviously Petra's there. Lena has Corne Kavidova has Nicolescu, which could be dangerous.
0: could <laughs> be awful.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I looked, at that the, match. I looked at the draw and I laughed. I just was like, this is going to be carnage, and I am going to get there early. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> because it, you know, I fully anticipate that if I have any one-on-one interviews, I will need to be prepared to get them well in advance.
0: (laughs) Oh, definitely. Definitely. So what have have been the highlights otherwise of your press so far? Any particularly good interviews you've had up there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought that, you know, I talked a little bit with Madison Keyes after her quarterfinal loss here in Birmingham. And, you know, just kind of, it was interesting. I asked her, you know, you know, now the first half of the year is done. is your first you know, full year on the tour outside of age restriction, you know, how would you rate, you know, your first half of the year? If I were to tell you, you know, back in January that you would have made two WTA quarterfinals in the first half of the season and, you know, beat Lena and, you know, all this sort of stuff, like, would you have taken it? And she's like, yeah, like, I'm definitely proud of what I've done, but I definitely wish it was more.
0: That's good. That's good.
1: Yeah. I I, I actually have really liked what I've seen from Madison over the last month of I think I've probably talked to you about this offline that, you know, there is a little bit of question in my mind as to whether or not she kind of has that killer instinct, that competitive fire. Because she's, she's kind of a happy-go-lucky teenager at this point.
0: Yeah, but I think that, I think the, for me at least, the Puig match in yes. Paris really sort of showed the hatred of losing that I think you want to see in your, in your <laughs> champions.
1: Let's see you, Monica
0: Puig. <laughs> hatred of monica Peague, i guess more to the point but you know just that sort of fire is good And i don't know necessarily if sloan is, is the other young american is really making a big movie it's all the talk right now sloan can be a little bit more blasé about stuff sometimes it seems like
1: Yeah, i mean sloan's just right now committed to it's you know speaking in tautology it's like it is what it is paris is paris you know whatever it is what it is it's like yeah these are really helpful answers but obviously understand why she was being that way yeah but yeah so that was interesting she, i told her, i was like you know madison like after the interview was done i was like oh you know when are you joining twitter because jamie just joined, joined twitter and she had this look of like jamie already joined twitter like before me <laughs> and uh, i was like dude you gotta get on it she's like i want to but max but max doesn't want me on twitter <laughs>
0: That's so <laughs> straight like, I'm
1: hoping I'm hoping by the US Open. I was like, "Okay." So that was pretty funny in terms of, you know, Eisenbud really has to realize that Madison is kind of the perfect Twitter person, really. Seriously.
0: And get Lena on there too. Why not?
1: Yeah, why not?
0: Put them all on. Put speaking, them all on. Speaking of Twitter, I think we should we mentioned it very, very briefly on our last show, but we I think we need to pay a little bit more homage to the newest member of the ATP top 10 on Twitter, Thomas Burditch Mm-hmm. And what exactly he has done with this medium, because he has immediately become my favorite favorite player tweeter like easily, yeah unbelievable
1: burdick is a weird that guy because like he, when you get him impressed he's a, he's not an easy guy to get open up and to show his personality and he's kind of got that cold check thing going and you know can kind of be a bit smug and, and it can be
0: very very monotone yeah a lot of the checks monotone. are just in terms of i think they're english it, it must be some sort of linguistic thing on some level because a lot of the even petrick can be a little bit monotone sometimes mm-hmm. and yeah other guys it's just the way they are
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. But uh, but so, you know, Twitter's, Twitter and social media generally has been a perfect outlet for him to kind of show his personality and his sense of humor, most importantly. So yeah, good on him. I mean, he, he's, he's, he's been good humored about the whole thing.
0: has been very colorful, too. Very unfiltered. It's just sort of, a. you wonder if this will lead to him being a more popular guy. I mean, clearly, he's already it's already really helpful among a lot of fans who, you know, you see how they're embracing Tom Wilson on Twitter. Yeah. Like, he's this whole new person who they seem to kind of not like before. I mean, I mean Bertic has done things to put himself at odds with both Federer and Nadal fan bases in the past, I think, and uh, this sort of salvages that nicely for him. So yeah, It'll be, be good to see if it sort of leads to him being more open through this social channel, in a little bit of the same way that Petkovic did it, where she was not yeah. really known before she did the social stuff, and then she suddenly becomes a very popular player mm-hmm. afterwards, so...
1: Yeah, Pekovic is a good, good, very good example. We, I mean, we were talking about this in the Birmingham press room, like trying to rack our brains to think of a player whose popularity among fans mm-hmm. com- is in complete disproportion to her career high rank and yeah. really her accomplishments. And we were like, eh, Pekovic kind of takes the cake, you know, in terms of how beloved she is without really accomplishing as mu- so much as to deserve that.
0: I think she's only won two titles. Yeah. in her career. Yeah. But we, uh, but she's obviously clearly brings a lot more to the table. And Absolutely. speaking of tables, I'm in the Holla Press Room, and the match between Eugenie and Gasquet just ended, so I can see one of them coming out to the table now here. So I'm going to end the show now. <laughs> um, thank you for joining us for this uh, abbreviated grass edition of the show. We will talk to you guys next week, hopefully after the Wimbledon Draw comes out. See what else is happening in Eastbourne and stuff. And uh, yeah, have a, uh, a good one, folks.
1: Later. Hello ain't no stopping me. Copy so don't copy me Y'all do it Sloppily And y'all can't crown that track, So it's not just gonna happen like that Cause it ain't no hollow